This week, Paul and I interview Harry Sverdlove, CTO and founder at Edgewise Networks. In the news, a critical SQLite flaw leaves millions of apps vulnerable to hackers. The Signal app states that they can't comply with the new Australian encryption law. And forget shifting left, it's time to race left. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Rapid7 powers the practice of SecOps. Using shared data, analytics, and automated workflows, SecOps unites IT, DevOps, and security teams to make security an outcome of innovation. Rapid7 combines technology, expertise, and advocacy to drive vulnerability management, application security, incident detection, and log management for more than 7,000 organizations worldwide. Power up your SecOps practice with a free trial at rapid7.com forward slash security weekly. Welcome, everyone, to episode 44, our 43rd episode of Application Security Weekly. I am, of course, your host, Keith Hoodlett, and I'm excited to be joined once again by my illustrious co-host, Paul Asadorian. Hey, Keith, it's good to be here today, our last episode of the year. It's incredible. It's one year later, and, and here we are. It's, Quite the uh, journey. it's been an amazing year, Paul. I've, I've really yes. enjoyed this so far. I, I'm actually really excited for what's coming up in 2019. I just had uh, one of our interviews, uh, our first guest of next year on... And I should actually say, by the way, our 45th episode, 44th of the year. <laughs> uh, sorry, bad notes. We on my started part. at zero. Um, That's right. But uh, yeah, we, exactly. Off by one error, guys. It had to happen eventually. It was the last episode of the year. Um, so, <laughs> with that, one quick announcement before we jump into our interview uh, the RSA conference in 2019 is the place to be for the latest in cybersecurity data, innovation, and thought leadership. From March 4th to the 8th in San Francisco, California. We will come live with cybersecurity's brightest minds as they gather together to discuss the industry's newest developments. Go to rsaconference.com slash securityweekly-us19 to register now using the discount code 5U as in unit, 9S as in Sierra, W, Whiskey, F, Frank, D, Delta. And that's Foxtrot, not Delta, sorry. So 5U, 9S, Sierra, W, Whiskey, F, Foxtrot, D, Delta to receive $100 off a full conference pass. With that, uh, Harry Sverdlove, Edgewise's Chief Technology Officer, was previously CTO of Carbon Black, where he was the key driving force behind their industry-leading endpoint security platform. Earlier in his career, Harry was the Principal Research Scientist for McAfee Inc., where he supervised the architecture of crawlers, spam detectors, and link analyzers. Prior to that, Harry was Director of Engineering at CompuWare Corporation, formerly New Mega, and principal architect for Rational Software, where he designed the core automation engine for Rational Robot. Harry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Keith, and thanks for not going back further than uh, Rational and dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, we will get to that. That comes up at the end of the segment. Um, but in the meantime, I know that uh, networks have been changing quite a lot, especially over the last, I don't know, let's call it 10 years or so. Um, where we've got all sorts of different challenges arising, whether it's identity-based authentication or uh, even zero-trust networks and things of that nature. And I'm sure our listeners would be really curious to know, uh, of course, for Edgewise Networks, uh, what it is you do and, and how networks have been changing uh, from your eyes, especially given all of your experience. Sure, no problem. Well, I think the biggest transformation has been we've gone from truly the physical to the virtual. There are no wires anymore. 
Um, we went, we started in a world where you connected all your wires and a token ring and you had a physical network. And now we live in a world where the network is somewhere else in the cloud and it's software defined and it's virtualized uh, and there's layers upon layers. And so there's no place to plug in cords. Just as importantly, there's no place to unplug cords um, when there's when there's challenges. And so one of the, the things that we do um, and the reason why I started Edgewise Networks is, well, how does security work and look in that kind of world where physical wires and physical locations and physical addresses don't mean anything anymore. So Edgewise Networks is all about securing communications, not at the address layer or at the wire, but at the identity of the assets that are communicating. Um, so you can kind of think of it as multi-factor authentication for your workloads. Um, similar to the same way we try to now secure our users with multi-factor authentication is doing the same with your applications in a way that it doesn't matter if you're in the cloud or you have a physical set of wires um, or you're virtualized or you're elastic or you're in a coffee shop. None of that actually matters. Um, and so that's what we do at uh, Edgewise Networks. That's awesome. Now, with what you do in terms of kind of the, as you put it, multi-factor authentication for uh, devices or applications, right? Um, what are some of the the use cases that you see yourself solving today in terms of, um, I don't know, like maybe maybe some of the, the big things that you've done in terms of, uh, you know, major achievements or major milestones that you've overcome, but also um, what are some of the problems that you see on the horizon that maybe you're looking to solve as well? Sure. So, you know, not one, you know, the number one challenge that we solve is lateral movement, whether that's infiltration or exfiltration. Um, and we see this time and time again, where if you think about networks, their whole premise is to facilitate communications, allow as much as possible so that everything can communicate with everything. Um, and of course, that's just, you know, a wide open highway for attackers. Um, and what we do is, and, and a number of our customers, they use us first to just get a visualization of, well, how are my applications actually communicating? Um, you'd be surprised. There's a lot of stuff that happens on a network that people don't realize. It's not just, oh, my application's talking to my database. There's all these helper services. Um, and we secure those applications independent of anything else running on that system. So unlike a firewall or traditional firewalls where you say, okay, I want this address to talk to that address, you know, over port 22, protocol, TCP, IP, or what have you, we secure, I want my Java application to talk to my database. Um, and, you know, one of the challenges and one of the successes that we've had is to be able to do that through independent of these complex uh, virtual network topologies, load balancers, and elastic computing, and fault failover situations where workloads are constantly shifting um, based on the load. Or you might have a situation on high volume where you have 10 new servers appear, and to have our protection policies actually work through those kinds of configurations. We have, I'm actually pretty proud. We just, uh, a couple of weeks ago, got issued our core patent on our ability to do enforcement on application identity independent of topology. Um, in terms of some of the things that we're looking at uh, down the road is how to do that similar type of enforcement for some of the even newer trends that are going on, which is getting away from, you know, we've gotten away from physical wires, but getting away from servers. So you look at technologies like Fargate um, and others where you don't even own the operating system, let alone the hardware. Of course, that's long since gone. Um, but when you're in an environment where all you own is, is a container or a microservice that you're deploying in someone else's container and providing that same level of security, even in those environments. And that, that's so important today <clears throat> as we think about the benefits of deploying applications, especially in serverless. I think a lot of people are just going to naturally move there. And maybe not for every application, right? But for so many applications, it just makes so much sense to do just that, focus on the app and not on the underlying infrastructure. No question about it. For so long, we've been, if you think about it, uh, we've been around long enough that you know, I remember the days you had to configure your operating system. You had to configure mm -hmm. all the patches, all the supporting stuff that something needed, um, and then maintain that hardware. And then the hard drives failed, and you had to be able to swap them out, and then yep. hot swappable. And we got away from managing hardware. Now we're moving away from managing the operating system, and we're soon getting away from managing even the container. And it allows us to focus on, well, what is it that we're trying to do? We're mm. trying to build a service or build an application to do something valuable. All that rest, all that tangential stuff, it's just sort of a means to an end. But just having someone else take care of it doesn't take away your responsibility of making sure they're secure. It's so true. It's funny, before you mentioned Token Ring, I, I administered a Token Ring network and learned really quickly um, not to break the ring because the whole network yeah. would just crash. 
<laughs> I remember those days with the little T-shaped connectors, and if yeah. you put something in on the wrong end, if you didn't have the right Terminator, the whole network went down. Yeah. Oh, I miss those days. I know, right? Yeah, we had the little clearing thing. You had to clear the port out. I think I have one of those in the studio somewhere. I saved it. So We've become collector's editions. Right. But it's true, though. I think much of the, if I like look back on my career, like a lot of the focus, especially earlier on, was securing what we call the network or the operating system and building it on hardware. And largely that has shifted. I don't think, I still think we're in that shifting phase, right? I still think so many people think of security as I have to secure and harden my operating system, but that's becoming less and less of a thing now, right? Well, it is becoming less and less of a thing, but it's still just as much of a problem. Mm. So now that you no longer, let's say, you're not managing the, that operating system, you still need to have faith that, well, who you're renting it from, so to speak, if, if it's a cloud sure. provider, that somebody is securing it. Because we hear about vulnerabilities, whether it's, you know, even some more egregious ones like Spectre or Meltdown, where just physically sharing the same CPUs as someone else who's renting the same hardware might give them some ability to glean what you're doing. So someone has to be responsible for it. Um, it's, uh, you know, it is an interesting challenge. And I think that we're still not only we need to let go of that, but we need to let go of it in a way that we know that it's still being taken care of as part of the, you know, the ecosystem of security. So uh, in terms of um, kind of modern tech for a lot of people, I know that a lot of them think of uh, this kind of problem as being a firewall problem, right? Would you describe uh, effectively what you folks are doing as kind of firewall for authentication, right? If someone had to, to simplify the um, kind of the, the problem that you addressed earlier, which is you don't want people moving around laterally in your environment that shouldn't be, um, would it would it kind of fit that niche? Because I know so many people think, oh, endpoint protection, like you know, EDR space. Um, it sounds like you're sufficiently different enough to say, okay, we're kind of like a web application firewall for your authentication, but not endpoint protection. Like, um, it, it sounds like you, you cover a lot of those problem sets that that a lot of other arenas are trying to play in. And, and how are you, in comparison to maybe some of those for people that are thinking, hey, I've got you know a new budget coming up next year. I'm thinking about these these problems that I'm facing. I could go and expand my endpoint protection, but is that really the problem that I'm trying to solve? Um, so I'll pause there and let you comment on that, Harry. Yeah, sure. And well, the good news is I'm not in marketing, so I, I have to deal with all the same buzzwords. Um, but I, you know, I wish I could invent my own new ones. Firewall is obviously the closest approximation, or it is really what we do, but it has a lot of connotations today. So people, a firewall today, even when they call them app, you know, if I had my way, I would say what we do is closest to an application firewall, but application firewall sort of been usurped um, to really mean just layer seven or packet inspection, uh, a deep packet inspection on physical wires, or at least on, on addresses. Um, so that the firewall itself is still on the host, it's on anything that's residing on that address, is abiding by that policy, but it's not really a, at the identity of who's making the connection or who's receiving the connection. Um, and what we do is we're, we're essentially, we are a firewall for the workload, for the application, for the service, whatever's running, in, and um, this is very closely related to another challenge that, of course, is a network security challenge, which is segmentation. The whole idea behind segmentation, or even to its extreme behind zero trust, is least pri pri privilege. You want to give everything as minimal access as what they need, and if you're allowing access on the wire um, or by an address, then anything who can, piggy can, can have that address can make that communication. It's called policy piggybacking. So you have access, you know, a similar thing. If you have a phone line to a friend and I get into your house, I can call your friend too. I just pick up the phone. But if in fact security was isolated and segmentation was isolated at the actual identity of what's the service communicating, the person in, in that metaphor, um, what's the application communicating, they're allowed to make a connection um, and someone else sitting in the same room on the same wire on the same address is not allowed to make that connection. Um, and so the challenge we are solving is a challenge that firewalls are trying to solve today. Um, and next-gen firewalls are trying to solve it with deep packet inspection. Um, but A, the form factor is much more complicated. When there's no physical wires or taps to put into, it's very hard to get a next-gen firewall in the cloud, for example. Um, and B, they're still using the wrong, uh, they're using the wrong semantics. They're still basically making their decisions based off of packets, based off of address port and protocol, as opposed to based off of who's communicating. In, the, in a container world, you know, the microservices, the pods, the containers. 
Um, and that's really where security needs to get closer and closer to the thing you're trying to secure. And that's actually the, the next point that I was going to go into. So especially as we look at uh, Docker taking off and now Kubernetes taking off, and I'm, I'm sure that there's probably some competing technology that we don't even know of today that's that's being built by, who knows, maybe the Amazons or Microsofts of the world or even yet another startup. Um, how do you see yourselves fitting into that space, um, you know, short-term, medium-term, long-term? Because I, I know that at least from a book that I'm reading that we highlighted in uh, the coming news segment called Project to Product, uh, Gene Kim is quoted as saying that we're about 2% of the way through the DevOps movement, which hmm. to me is surprising. Um, but that means that, you know, there's a lot of room for growth in that arena. So I'm curious to know, you know, for, for your use cases, um, what sort of effects you're seeing that you're, you're able to have now in terms of that kind of forward leaning architecture? And then uh, what sort of things you're, you're preparing for perhaps as, as you're starting to see changes and shifts in the market? Sure. Well, I think the first way that, we, that and one of the things we're seeing, one of the uh, biggest drivers for adoption for Edgewise is in the migration space. So let's just say you have either, well, it could be a legacy application or even a new application you're building on-prem and you want to move it to the cloud, maybe to Amazon, maybe to Azure, maybe to GCP. It, you're not yet sure. You want to move it to different architectures. And one of the things that by moving security to the workloads, it travels with the workloads. So cloud migration and migration projects is one of the strong drivers. Um, with Edgewise, if you set a secure set of security policies, how is it that your applications are supposed to communicate? That set of policies doesn't change just because you're sitting in Amazon on an EC2 instance or change because you're going to Azure or because you're on-prem. Um, it's the same policies and they travel with your workloads so that you build your security once and then you try different architectures or you try migrations or you put a load balancer on and you try different, arch uh, different technologies to see how your application can scale. And it, as you do that, the security automatically scales with you. Um, and so we see ourselves and we see by changing the way security is done that we're able to help customers adopt new technologies quicker, try new techniques quicker. Um, and I think that's pretty important because otherwise, you know, one of the, the headwinds to adopting any new architecture is, well, I got to redo everything. I got to redo my technology stack. I got to redo my security stack. I've got to redo those things. And have, knowing that your security can travel with you or be a part of that whole life cycle, um, I think is a big facilitator. Yeah, that I really like that angle to it just based on my experiences, <clears throat> because as we try new technologies or change platforms, as we experienced this year, it can very easily open up security holes. And if I've already applied those security controls around my application, if I can go anywhere and not have to worry about me screwing up a configuration somewhere when I deployed to some serverless technology or some cloud technology, that's a huge win because there's going to be a whole ton of that moving forward. And to know that I have some protections for when I screw something up, as it's very easy, especially for me, to screw something up in that realm, uh, that's, that's a huge win. Yeah, and well, fortunately, you're not alone. A lot of people screw up, so so it's okay. You can <laughs> you yeah. can join the club. Well, and it's just you know we talk about the um, opening up like your Docker or Kubernetes uh, API and accidentally exposing that to the world. That happened to us. That's happening at a much more rapid rate today, largely because people are trying different architectures and platforms. And if one little configuration mishap, all of a sudden it's open to the world, the bad guys are scanning that stuff so fast and uh, taking advantage of it that you need something to protect you against that particular situation, right? Yeah, no, I think there's no question. It's why we often, we talk about multiple layers um, or you know certainly compensating controls. One of those challenges, if we've, all agree we're living in a world where every six months things are changing new technologies coming out um, and attackers absolutely are taking advantage of this um, whether it's because you've misconfigured something which is often the case with some of these uh, newer environments or you know either they're mm -hmm. just new and or they have issues um, or there's just known vulnerabilities all of these new technologies are built by humans they have flaws it's 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 natural there's 19 CVEs discovered every single day um, I believe it's four of them are, are critical or high severity. So it's going to be a continuing process and you can't always depend on, okay, I'm going to catch my error faster than the bad guy, or I'm going to apply a patch or security fix faster than the bad guy. You right. need to have compensating controls in place. And now, Harry, the, it sounds like in your solution, in defining the architecture I was describing, I could say my Jenkins server is here. The only ones connected to that are trusted developers. And by the way, the Jenkins server, it needs to talk to my Kubernetes server to do automated tasks. So Kubernetes trusts my Jenkins server. I can apply the, that, those rules and then go put it wherever I want. And those rules follow it? 
That's correct. Oh, that's awesome. uh, and they follow yeah. the identity of that. So wherever yeah. that Jenkins server is, wherever your Kubernetes uh, cluster is, mm-hmm. it will follow those where they go. Um, you know, the Kubernetes API, that recent vulnerability that was mm. discovered last month, mm-hmm. uh, is a perfect example of where you let something out and a malicious person can then use that to essentially, uh, again, back to piggybacking, um, can right. piggyback on your existing policies and have these communications with all of your pods as if they're secure. I, that use case really resonated with me. That's awesome. And going back for just a moment to the idea of portability as well, um, Harry, for your experience so far, at least for what you're seeing, a lot of people, of course, are making the migration to the cloud. Some people are saying, okay, the cloud is now too expensive. We're actually migrating back to our own data centers, ergo like the Netflixes of the world, for example. Um, it, it sounds like your technology is, is wildly portable from uh, a container space. Um, but also, how do you play into kind of that serverless architecture uh, if at all, right? I mean, that is one of those things that do you have maybe um, a, its own API instance that it can make a request to within uh, the serverless technology? Because a lot of people tend to be looking at that as maybe the leapfrog to containers today, and, and some people are starting to consider how they can use that. Is it that uh, Edgewise would sit on the main application with the uh, you know functions as a service being what they are for whatever functionality, or are you actually bundling into uh, any sort of the, you know, Azure functions or the lambdas of the world as well. Right. So, yeah, this is a couple of things there. So first is we made, when we built the technology, we wanted to build a platform agnostic. So it works on-prem, it works in the cloud. Um, and we built that. We wanted to keep certain principles so that we weren't dependent on only a certain set of APIs provided by a, a cloud provider. Um, and that gives us that portability, that gives us the ability. I think we support now, it was last count, well over 400 different distros of Linux, almost every variation of Windows. So almost any platform uh, operating system out there for the serverless functions like that are provided by clouds like RDS um, and Lambda functions, we can control, at least on the managed side, any of your software that you manage, any of the hosts that you manage connecting into it. And if you kind of think of it as a sort of like a dead man switch, where Edgewise is controlling the communications into those things, and if anything goes wrong, any, any uh, system either is reporting unhealthy or some suspicious patterns are connected. Essentially, we drop the handle on the button and all communication is stopped to that third-party service. Um, obviously, what we want to do in our goal moving forward is we want to have that same level of identity authentication present on the other side. The side, the serverless side. So if it's Fargate or if it's Lambda functions, um, and that requires the same principles we want to achieve, but it's going to require a slightly different technology approach um, because obviously the form factor is different. Um, There's a number of different competing ways that people are trying to solve this problem with sidecar containers, um, with uh, our own, with your own libraries. And we're looking at a number of different approaches so that we can apply that. What we want is we want a technology that at the end of the day, whatever is receiving, whether you own the container, whether you own the server, it is authenticated, it's cryptographically authenticated, the identity of who's making the request or receiving it, and is validated. Today, we're able to do that for at least all of the managed components of your application um, going into or coming from the third-party serverless servers, services. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I, I can definitely see it being a situation where in your serverless function, you've got to call out to maybe another serverless function that you're offering right now. So you're selling them a serverless function that is spun up in Lambda or whatever um, to be able to then okay, they can quickly authenticate inside of their own function, whether or not it's an authenticated call. Exactly. Um, You know, you kind Um, of think about it sort of like, you know, a secure registry. You make a request, you say, I want access to whatever, and you you have a named service that that actually could go through Edgewise and we would authenticate both, are you allowed to? And then based on your cryptographic identity, either give you that access or not. You know, one of the other things that I think people don't realize is even in container environments and all of these serverless environments, there's a lot of times if your application, if you're integrating in with identity or Active Directory services or DNS, you're relying on a lot of third-party services that aren't necessarily containerized or running on the same system. Um, and so that's another reason we wanted to make sure our technology approach worked outside of the container as well, because there's still a lot of communications that happens even in quote unquote isolated environments that isn't so isolated. That's absolutely true, especially with uh, the things that I see working at Thermo Fisher Scientific. Uh, we work with a lot of labs, for example, and a lot of them have air-gapped labs, but that doesn't mean that they don't have communications happening within the lab. It just means that there's no internet connectivity to the lab. 
Um, right. So that can be a whole host of problems that you're solving as well with what you do, uh, which is awesome. Paul, do you have any additional questions before we jump into the five questions for application well, security? Weekly? I like that because it, it can do it from the beginning and kind of what Keith was talking about reminded me of, you know, developers and sometimes working with, sometimes not working with uh, network systems or security people, right, will develop the initial framework. And I think developers understand what the trust relationships need to be right from the beginning. And if they're building those in, where I see a lot of problems are as the application starts to get larger and try and trust more systems and move into different um, staging environments, that's when you start to notice problems. But if it's done from the beginning, speaking of shifting left, I think that's, a, that's another big win. Yeah, there's no question about that. This whole idea of enabling and empowering earlier, um, definitely curious to see how we run left, but we're, we're certainly seeing a shift to the left. Mm. Um, it would be great if it was a sprint, I'll right. take a run. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Absolutely. With that, Harry, are you ready for Application Security Weekly's five questions? I am ready. And I'm being that I'm the last person to answer these questions for 2018, um, hopefully I'll do them justice. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. So we did promise we'd get back to dating yourself. So the first question we have is, what were the specs like on your first computer? Oh, geez, a TRS-80. Um, it was, I think, eight kilobytes of memory. I had a tape storage device um, and a very tiny keyboard that you know, funny enough, now that I think about it, it kind of reminds me of an iPhone keyboard today. <laughs> so I think we've gone full circle. Nice, nice. The other question we often ask is, what programming language did you learn first? And uh, to what extent, if you're writing any code today, what do you enjoy writing in? Okay, so this is going to date me really badly, but I was 10 years old and I went to the first computer camp that had ever been created. Um, yeah, that's really nerdy, but they did other things like archery and, and, and other stuff, but it was the first computer camp. And the first language I learned, I learned three languages that summer. The first was logo. So I had the little turtle, forward 50, back 50, right, left, your basic geometry. Um, and then I also learned Pascal and basic, but logo was first and I'll always have a special place in my heart for that little turtle. Nice, nice. Now, yeah, I think, uh, also, second part of that question, I, think I missed. No, no, I was going to say, if you're writing any languages today, if you enjoy writing in oh. anything, but... Um, yeah, to, no, well, so, yeah, today, I sadly, I don't get as much hands-on as I want, but the language that I use most often than not is Python. Yeah, and that's a common one. I, I mean, it's one of those things that it's hard to... If you do it wrong, you'll know pretty quickly that you failed fast, but also it's it's kind of nice because it has good you know spacing and form factor to it. So uh, logic well, flow is one of I actually, yeah, I do love it. It took me a while to adjust to the fact that spaces matter. Um, and I tend to be from that old school of thought. You know, there's a whole debate sort of like uh, VI versus Emacs. Do you use tabs or do you use spaces? Um, and that distinction, you know, I used tabs um, and others would use spaces. You can't mix and match in Python. So a lot of fun yep. philosophical debates over things that in the end don't really matter, but they definitely matter. Well, it's funny because we're going to actually pull, ask you about those philosophical debates. So first, VI, Vim, or Emacs? Emacs, hands down. Sorry. Always been an Emacs guy. <laughs> That's okay. I will, Sorry. All I, of you I, might I, have words. Some people will hate me for it, but I will I will die with Emacs. And on Windows, I used uh, a, a program, actually Lugaroo software called Epsilon, which was Emacs for Windows. Hmm. Um, and it allowed you to open a command shell inside, of, uh, inside the editor, which was unbelievably powerful in those days. And so I've always been an Emacs guy. Uh, fanboy. Right on, right on. So the other question, of course, is spaces or tabs? It sounds like you use tabs. Did we convert you to spaces somewhere over the last number yeah. of years? Or are you still a tabs guy? No, I had, well, so I'm a tabs guy, but I use, I, I use my Emacs, I changed them so my tabs become spaces. Um, I had to convert to spaces because we now live in a world where, um, look, I started when I was, when I started coding, everything fit on it, it was an 80 character screen. And, you know, you could do your eight, Visually, you made space tab, but it was just a visual spacing. Um, and then eventually you started adjusting your tabs to be four space and then two space um, because lines got longer and longer. And then all of a sudden editors discovered auto word wrapping and auto indenting. And eventually just tabulation started losing some of the original value it had. Um, so today I am a tab guy, but auto converted to spaces. Gotcha. For me, it's I always just set up my tab as four spaces and call it a day is usually what I run with. So I totally hear you there. Um, last question, though, uh, what sort of advice would you give to newcomers in the industry, given, again, your history of experience and all the different things you've done? 
So, you know, <laughs> I guess I can go a little bit on a soapbox here, but what I would, the advice I would give, um, and because of just my own experience and just also watching uh, the industry and all of the different languages have developed over the years, whatever you learn, I don't care whether it's Java, Go, Python, take your pick, Ruby, start, don't just learn the language. Don't just rely on other people's frameworks. We Developers today, sadly, I think a lot of them have become lazy. So they just go off to, you know, SourceForge, they download a bunch of free sample library kits of this, that, and the other thing, and they never understand what's actually happening. Um, and you know, I, I came from a day and age where it actually mattered how, how many bytes mm. um, your code compiled into. And so you thought about memory usage when you did things. You thought about the impact of everything because everything mattered. And now we just don't care. And I get that CPUs are cheap and memory is cheap. But the best coders I know don't just rely on frameworks. They understood the difference between using one type of conditional versus another. They understood how exception handling worked, how inheritance worked, and what was happening under the covers so that when you rely on some third party, which is fine, you know, you know, don't reinvent the wheel for sure, but you understood, you understand what they're doing and it gives you, it makes you a much better developer without question. I agree. Absolutely. I have the same advice with anyone in security, right? Or really anyone in IT. I think I agree because you can go create all these things up in the cloud or serverless, but if you haven't built the underlying infrastructure by hand, I go back to my wife's example in x-ray school, they made everyone build an x-ray machine. So you understand right. the technology that you're using. And I think it's a great analogy to, you know, our field today. I studied, you know, even though I was programming since I was 10, I studied electrical engineering in college because I wanted to go that step further. Um, you know, one of the projects we did is we built an Apple hard drive. Right. Um, I wanted to understand how, how things worked under the covers. And it just gives you a much better understanding today now with modern environments, microservices. We have, I have as many third-party dependencies in, in, in our applications as we have actual microservices. And when something goes wrong, um, or, you know, uh, the tubes are clogged, so to speak. Um, and you ask the question, well, what went wrong? So many developers go, I don't know. Yeah. You know, there's 20, 30, 40, 50 components going on. I don't really know what's happening. It's voodoo magic. And it shouldn't be because it's really not at the end of the day. Awesome. Thank Absolutely. you so much, Harry. With that, check out edgewise.net slash securityweekly to learn more about Edgewise Networks and all the good things they're doing. Harry Sferdla, thank you so much for joining us. With that, we're going to take a short break and then come back for the news. Hard-coded credentials can be trouble, but not as much trouble as a vulnerable DevOps environment. If you want protection without the hassle of security slowing you down, CyberArk, the number one provider in privilege access security, has the solution for you. With CyberArk Conjure, developers can easily secure secrets across any DevOps toolchain or platform, whether your application runs in the cloud or on-premises. Eliminate the headaches of managing secrets and try Conjure open source for free with no strings attached. Visit conjure.org forward slash ASW to get started today. Do you need a web application security solution that can improve your detection rate and enable easier remediation? Acunetix has a fully automated solution that can detect and report over 4,500 web vulnerabilities. Fast and scalable, it can scan thousands of pages without interruption, including HTML5, JavaScript, and single-page applications. Acunetix provides accuracy with the lowest false positives by combining black box and white box testing. For more information, visit acunetix.com forward slash securityweekly. Welcome back, everyone, for the application security news for the week of December 16th. But first, quick announcement. If you are interested in quality over quantity and having meaningful conversations instead of just a badge scan, join us April 1st to the 3rd at Disney's Contemporary Resort for InfoSec World 2019, where you can get, or rather, where you can connect and network with like-minded individuals in search of actionable information. Use the registration code OS19-SECWEEK for 15% off the main conference world pass. With that, Paul, Facebook is having a really bad year. Uh, 6.8 million photos potentially uh, uh, basically leaked via API for yet another bug. Uh, this doesn't look good for Facebook. I mean, they've had what? I don't know, three, four, seven uh, breaches, it feels like this year, and all in the millions of, of you know numbers potentially breached. Well, yeah, I, well, I think that's a because they have so many users, right? Yeah, <laughs> Even a, a breach right. that or potential breach that could expose a very small population of their users ends up being five to 10 million. This is like 6.8 million, right? Just because of the sheer number of users that they have. 
this one was kind of interesting because I think it was you had to have a Facebook app that yep. had access to your account. And then if it was of a certain type or probably using a certain type of API call, it could have gained access to all of your photos rather than none or some. I'm not sure exactly how it... I don't remember how that works. Cause, I mean, we do use a face, write a Facebook uh, app thing, but it's not the one that would hit the user at any point in time. It's just to post stuff to a page. So, Yeah, this one is... Uh, so interestingly, it was only for about 12 days, September 13th to September 25th of this year that this is actually a problem. But yeah, it was an API call that third-party apps uh, that Facebook allows, right? So uh, in, in similar fashion to maybe like TweetDeck for Twitter, for example. So if you have like sure. a third-party app that allows you to access maybe Facebook and a couple of other apps within it, um, it could access more than just the public photos through the API. So basically the API itself um, would allow for the leakage of potentially more photos via that API to the app. Yeah, and I mean, um, and look, from a user perspective, if you're putting a picture on Facebook, whether you've marked it as public, private, or changed any of the settings on it, you should be doing that knowing that it's on the internet. It's yeah, right, exactly. Just because it's on Facebook in private doesn't mean that it's actually safe um, is kind of the way to, to think about that. And you're absolutely right. In this case, it was uh, 1,500 apps built by some 876 developers that may have had access. What's interesting here, though, is it, basically they're notifying the affected users who installed any of those apps mm -hmm. um, and gave permission to access their photos. So what's interesting about that is Facebook knows that you installed that app, which is a little weird. Uh, and they know that you gave that app those permissions. So, Well, yeah, I think they do They do track that. And I think it's really for your benefit as a Facebook user that they're tracking what apps you've installed and what they're doing because they're very, their API is very picky about that. If you, It's very specific. Having worked a little bit with the Facebook API, it's very specific. If you want to do certain operations, you have to submit your app for approval, and there's a whole big, long process to go through. So it is very tightly controlled. And I'm actually, I think it's actually good for Facebook that they know exactly the apps, exactly the developers, and exactly the people that are affected. I think that's showing some yeah. good, at this time, showing some decent good, good uh, diligence uh, by Facebook. So... That's true. That's absolutely true. And, you know, hats off to them for catching it so quickly and remediating it so fast, right? I mean, yeah. 12 days, right? So if you think about in the course of that, you probably had at least one weekend. So it's more like two weeks of, of business time to actually detect, remediate and fix the problem. Um, pretty I awesome, hope, really. I hope next year we don't have to talk about I think we, I hope we can talk about positive things for Facebook, not yeah, all right. the negative stuff. Really right? great. I, to do really that. Great I don't know that it's going to happen, Paul, but I, 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 I hope you know, applaud your optimism, right? <laughs> Um, and with that, actually, it's funny because at the very bottom of that article, they actually talked about the fact that Facebook wasn't the only major tech company to have breaches this year as much as they made headlines. Mm. There was, of course, Twitter with the similar API issue that they had yep. uh, announced in September. And then Google's two API issues related to their Google Plus platform that is summarily being executed. Mm. Um, so, yeah, like all the big three pretty much had major breaches. I think the only one that I don't recall anything from is LinkedIn. Uh, so, you know, knock on wood to that. Maybe we'll hear something early 2019. But, well, and I think, uh, you know, I haven't really looked at the LinkedIn API. I think that is probably the most locked down uh, API out of all of them in, in my estimation. I haven't looked at any detail because um, I haven't necessarily interfaced with the LinkedIn API. But it's I, from what I gather, it's pretty it's pretty locked down. Like it's hard to get a developer account. I think. Well, that all depends, of course. On uh, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, we talked about that that uh, supposed breach or that data cache of what looks like LinkedIn data, right? So who oh, yeah, knows? well, I scraping mean, we yeah, scraping is a different issue, and of course, LinkedIn, um, from what I've gathered, works very hard to try and prevent that. But uh, you know, as you know, it's only only so much that you can do on that front. So. Yeah, very interesting. Speaking of only so much you can do, and perhaps in a situation that they should have done more, uh, this SQLite bug sounds really bad. And because there are so many apps affected by it, they haven't released any other details than to say it allows a remote attacker to execute arbitrary or malicious code Yikes. on affected devices and leak program memory or crash applications. This sounds awful, Paul. Like SQLite is used in so many places. Well, yeah, because it's a really fast and easy sort of SQL database. It is SQL, but it's SQL. Yeah. It's light as the name implies, right? 
Well, so for, for my experience with it, I used it as um, just kind of a proof of concept database for the InfoSec Mentors project, mm. which eventually ran on Postgres, but as a you know quick stand-up local test environment that has a lot of the same sort of syntactic sugar to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, SQLite is a good starting point for, for all of that, and a lot of people use it from a development standpoint. So uh, we talked, I don't know, maybe about a month ago on how easy it was to exploit developer infrastructure. Here we go, right? Now you've got a remote right. code execution on SQLite, which, by the way, is probably used by a ton of developers locally on their box. And what do they have access to? Source code. Yeah, I think there's certain performance benefits depending on the type of application you're building that SQLite is very, very good at as well. So you're going to see it in production, I think. More yeah. so than, than yeah, probably. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. Um, one of the places that it's seen is IoT devices, right? Um, oh, or of absolutely. course, macOS or Windows apps. And Electron apps is the other big one. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, the one thing that I found really interesting about this, by the way, is Chromium-based web browsers, which includes, of course, Chrome, Opera, Vivaldi, Brave, and Edge, in this case now, or soon to be, mm-hmm. um, also support SQLite through the deprecated web SQL database API, and it was actually confirmed by Microsoft that after testing Chromium, it's affected by this as well. Wow. Um, yeah, which is is really bad because now you go to you know a site that maybe has some malicious code in it that actually abuses this exploit in some way, and yeah, you know you're off to the races. Um, so not great in any stretch of the imagination. Uh, this will be probably when we talk about I think in early 2019 when we finally start to see the exploit code because it's great. used in other products by like you know. Adobe, Apple, Dropbox, Firefox, Android, Microsoft. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah it, is, it's, it is used all over the place. The more you think about that, the more you'll come up with places that use it. By the way, other things that are used all over the place, Jenkins, and also open to the internet uh, with you know potentially remote code execution vulnerabilities and other nastiness, Jenkins. That's, so, that's really, I mean, I think we've seen it that the Docker engine... Kubernetes, and now Jenkins, right? And these are all critical components to your DevOps uh, infrastructure. I think mo- they probably capture the market share of what's out there if you're doing some kind of uh, container uh, environment and doing DevOps. You probably have those technologies out there. Um, and they are all vulnerable. I mean, well, I think Docker and Kubernetes fall into the exposed APIs we pointed out in the previous segment being bad. Um, and now you throw Jenkins into the mix. Um, now it has vulnerability. I, this is just a, it's, I think it's going to be a, an evolution, right? I think next year we're going to see a lot more of this. Uh, and as I've predicted before, until it starts to settle down, all these technologies are new. Uh, all of them are going to have these flaws that are exposed. And I think not as many DevOps shops as I would like are really conscious of applying security down to this level like including in their threat modeling, what if this is vulnerable? Or you're pushing out a new architecture so fast that you're missing out, so you're missing some of these pieces that are, are critical to your security or architecture. Absolutely. And, and in this case as well, um, usually you're going to see, again, Docker or Kubernetes has actually got something that is publicly facing, whether it's the application that lives in the container is uh, you know exposed to the internet because it's hosting your web server, for example. Um, that Jenkins would be exposed to the internet is concerning. And I have seen it in some of the bug bounty programs that I've been a part of, um, which would probably, you know, I should go back and look at any of those targets because with these two bugs, you could provide a malformed login credential which caused Jenkins servers to move their config.xml file from the home directory to another location. So now if the server restarts, maybe it gets a new patch, or like maybe people are going out and patching it for this very bug, for example. Um, it has the situation where the server boots in a default configuration that has no security. Like, talk about an opportunity to build in security by default so that this doesn't happen. Jenkins, right? You know, anyone that develops Jenkins that you listens to the show, Maybe an opportunity to rethink that because, yeah, that's not great. Um, because malformed login, like who would ever do that? Like every you know security tester slash potential malicious person under the sun. Well, and it's uh, interesting as we automate more and look at the CI/CD pipeline, and we have tools such as these, the security around them has to be really high because in the yep. wrong hands, I mean, essentially you're essentially turning over the keys to the kingdom to an attacker, 
because they're taking they're set up to take those automated operations in your DevOps process. Yeah, these sit right in the most critical point of that pipeline process, which is usually um, automation into your code repository or automation for deployment, right? Or both in some cases, which is the worst possible place to be exploited. And the other exploit that's associated with this, by the way, Paul, is that you could have a, basically creating an ephemeral user record in the server's memory uh, with the second bug, which would allow an attacker a short period of time where they could authenticate using a ghost username and credentials, which I imagine would look really interesting if you're running like DFIR, because suddenly you've got user credentials logging in that just don't exist anywhere and were never created. Right. Like, talk about a nightmare. So basically, the, the folks that did uh, some research on this, including ZDNet, by the way, who did the, the research uh, under Catalan Campenu, uh, who did the, the article, they found something like 2,000 vulnerable Jenkins servers probably out on Shodan mm -hmm. uh, within just a few minutes. So yeah, not not great. If you have uh, exposed Jenkins, patch fast, and maybe even run a little bit of incident response to make sure that you're checking. You haven't been owned already, yeah. Agreed. Yeah, because you might be. Um, one of the other ones I know, Paul, that you wanted to talk about was the whole thing with Signal and this new Australian uh, you know, encryption law that they've come out with. So we talked about the encryption law back on PSW last week. So I think that was, what, 585, 586 um, for last week's episode of, of Paul's Security Weekly. So we won't cover it here. But Signal came back with a rather interesting response, which is basically, yeah, no, get stuffed. Uh, <laughs> it's not going to happen. We can't actually include it. I think they made some pretty good points in this article. Yeah, and I we were speculating about this on on Paul Security Weekly last week, and I think that Signal has definitely nailed it in terms of like we don't control the keys. Like the end users choose the keys and encrypt messages to each other, and that's outside of the purview of Signal. So therefore, we're not able to comply because we can't backdoor our users' encryption because the keys are out of our hands. The it's other thing that they point basic. out pretty pretty readily is, by the way, this is open source. So we can't include a backdoor in the signal because guess yes. what? Everybody can look at the source code. You yep. want us to include a backdoor? People are going to find that thing so fast and right. probably exploit it. Yes. Um, it's, it's hilarious because uh, the situation as we started to speculate on Pulse Security Weekly last week, uh, and I, again, I think it was 586, um, is basically that you're going to have a situation where Okay, so the government of Australia decides to blacklist uh, Signal. Well, guess what? You know, a lot of other countries, China, uh, probably Russia, and others have tried to do the same thing. And guess what? People still find a way to to use it or to download it, right? So, right. Um, it it just kind of goes to show that, yeah, you can try to change the rules of the game, but that horse has already left the barn, and closing the doors now isn't going to do you any good. So maybe get better at your investigative techniques. And, uh, and start to do a little bit more on that side of things because guess what? The encryption ain't going to help you uh, yeah. in, in trying to make people you know, unlock their crypto is just not going to work for things like Signal. Right. And there's only going to be more situations like Signal, not less. And it's interesting as you try and say, well, this is you can't use this. If it's open source, I can change it so many different ways to give it a different signature in so many different ways that trying to block it would be very, very difficult. Yeah, what are you going to do? Block GitHub right, at the right. edge, right? Like everybody's code lives there. Yeah. So so that's going to be a whole problem where, okay, I can just go get the source code and compile it myself. I don't even need to like download the application. Uh, and short of blocking GitHub, there are probably going to be enough forks of it that like, good luck. It, it so. Signal is, is problematic because it does such a good job of putting the, the encryption in the hands of the end user it's fallen victim to the operating systems it run on runs on are very insecure. There's been at least two incidents where people said, Oh, there's a you know flaw in signal and, and they should fix it. And no, like if you look back in history where signal came from and how it's the architecture looks and how it's dealt with this issue in the past is they're not responsible if you have poor OPSEC or your operating system's insecure. Like they've done everything they can to ensure the privacy uh, of their users. And that you, you, they're not at fault for a lot of you. And you will see articles that we've covered them in the past. Uh, one time we actually heard from Moxie Marlin Spike at Signal and was like, no, this, they're, the press is really trying to basically pick on Signal, but it's largely unjustified because it's the fault of wherever they run on. 
Um, and, and that's one reason why I why I trust Signal. And I think it's hard for if you're trying to do any kind of monitoring of any kind of enterprise communications, Signal blows your theory out of the water because anyone can install the app and have end-to-end encryption between them using their own keys. So, right. So, what are you going to do? Block Signal and iPhones? Like, it's just not right. going to happen in the Australian market. And, and as I started to speculate as well, again on Paul Security Weekly, it's either. Australia is going to have to make its own phones at this point with their own operating system on that phone uh, and all the software made in Australia, which just probably isn't going to happen. Or this law is effectively going to fall flat somewhere and it's just it's going to become impossible. And they're they're probably going to just start putting punitive measures around if you don't unlock it. Right. So uh, that whole idea of you have a right of innocence until proven guilty kind of gets thrown out the door when you do that sort of thing. So. I don't know. It's a mess, to say the least. Oh, um, and speaking way, of messes, we get to talk yes. about WordPress now. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, so again, Catalan continue. Uh, so WordPress plugs a bug that lets Google index some of the users' passwords, which is like, what? Uh, okay. So WordPress recently released uh, the 5.0 branch, and then uh, basically shortly thereafter, they released a 5.0.1 set of fixes for seven security vulnerabilities, some of which allowed for site takeover, which is like, wow, really, guys? Your WordPress? Like, you should have this down by now, I think. Uh, and yeah, it's just like, basically what you had is you could do specially crafted searches in Google where an attacker could find the pages and collect users' email addresses and in some rare cases, default generated passwords based on the way that Google was indexing uh, the new WordPress instances under 5.0. It's like, what year is it again? Are we about to go into 2019 and WordPress is releasing like wildly vulnerable releases to the public and Google's just indexing them? Like, I can't believe it's this just ball. Crazy. It's just crazy. I, I mean, in all, it's a time trade-off, right? In all of the time you, spend, you save implementing WordPress to get that easy, quick access to functionality, you lose so much of that in just the administrative overhead to administering WordPress, which is kind of where I'm at right now, is I've got WordPress instances to to maintain, and so much of our time is going towards uh, trying to you know lock them down and keep up to date with um, uh, multiple fronts. You got to make sure your PHP is in the latest version, right? Because if WordPress is running on an older version of PHP, you're screwed. You got to make sure yep. WordPress is up to date, and they just released 5.0, now it's 5.0.1, uh, so you got to do that again. Your plugins have to be updated, which is an ongoing task depending on how many you have. And your themes. Don't forget your themes. There's code in your themes that can be exploited. So those have to be kept up to date, including the ones you're not actively using because the theme is still there. The code is still there and can be uh, exploited. So it's hard. Yeah. And, and not to mention, of course, the other bugs in this whole thing are not great either. For example, they had uh, external uh, XXE, external XML entities uh, allowing server-side request forgery, as well as unserialization problems based on, of course, the PHP-based framework. Um, As I was reading through this, I was just like, this is a train wreck. This is like a way to go out of 2018 in flames. Well, then if Uh, you're hosting the operating system, you got to patch the operating system and all the libraries and applications. And then you got to worry about the web server that WordPress is running on that's linked to PHP. And then if you're running the database, you could worry about patching the database server along with all those other things that I just mentioned. If we need something new that has, <laughs> I, I keep, I, and I haven't seen a good recommendation, something new that has a lot of functionality that is secure, that uses a newer architecture that you don't have to worry about all of these components to be yeah. your new CMS. So not running PHP, not using SQLite, and uh, perhaps is a much better ecosystem problem than, right. say, WordPress. So yeah, yeah I, it's, I don't know, Paul. I think that WordPress is going to be around like Flash, right? It's just going to keep holding on and Forever. be the zombie software for decades that we just have to put up with for, with marketing teams everywhere. Well, I, I, I don't think it's just marketing teams, and I think it it's not like Flash where people are largely moving away from it. More and more people are moving to it every day so this is in essence a much larger problem uh than flash except it's not on people's desktops it's out on the web but still i think it's going to be around for a long time well especially because i think it's php 5.6 or 5.7 is going end of life in like i don't know 
less than two weeks, mm-hmm. um, which is a whole other host of issues, especially for older WordPress instances that aren't being updated. So, yeah, uh, we're going to be talking about WordPress next year, Paul. I just get this. We are. Yeah, WordPress is, is going to be a thing we're always talking about, I think. So speaking of other cool things worth talking about, by the way, I wanted to uh, go ahead and highlight this one tool. It's called Swiftness X. So it is an uh, electron-based uh, cross-platform uh, note-taking tool for penetration testing. So I know I talked about Serpico last week under Learning and Tools. This one was another one that looks pretty nicely built. I haven't played with it yet myself, but um, in terms of, you know, again, cross-platform tool that people can use to track their work from a perspective of, I don't know, running bug bounty tests against WordPress instances. Um, it seems like a really cool, lightweight tool worth, worth checking out. So definitely go see that. That's uh, story number one under Learning and Tools. Yeah, the there's a lot thing. of tools like this, Keith, and I, I was uh, telling someone earlier, it's actually the CEO and founder of a company called Polarity. Um, yeah. He's asking me like about my note-taking process for things. I'm like, well, I have a remarkable tablet because Keith recommended I get one. But like when you're on the screen doing stuff, I'm like, I, I'm always copying and pasting into, well, VI, all right, in, in my case. And there's a lot of better tools that are integrated um, with your workflow. And it's one of the things that uh, I believe Polarity can can offer as a feature. And now, you know, we're covering something similar on the show, more geared towards if you're writing a report. Uh, Polarity has a different uh, enterprise play, but uh, interesting nonetheless that I think the way that we will take notes as we're doing things is going to change and be better tools that will have vulnerabilities more than likely. <laughs> that, will, that will be running SQLite and you have to go patch them really quick. Oh, yeah, and just with um, this is Node.js, so that's why I say that. Right, right. So the other things that I wanted to mention under Learning and Tools, because I know we haven't uh, talked about it too much, is there are two really good books that I've, I've enjoyed quite a lot. Um, one is Project to Product, which is currently something that I'm reading um, and have enjoyed for just talking about the, the state of change inside of the industry uh, and, and, of course, inside of... Um, you know, where we're going in, in terms of DevOps and in terms of the way that we actually build software and where we need to go. Uh, so that's by Mick. Um, let me actually pull it over here. It's by Mick Kirsten. I actually have it over here on my bookshelf now. Um, so I'm currently reading through that. And I've enjoyed it quite a lot because it calls out a lot of the things that I, I think get overlooked in the whole DevOps transformation process. Um, so that was one that I wanted to mention. The other book that I really have enjoyed, and I've enjoyed all of their work, is by Jason Fried or Jason Fried and David Heinemeyer Hansen, which is, it doesn't have to be crazy at work. Um, they're very candid in their books, and they're actually pretty short and, and very consumable. Uh, so if you ever get a chance to go read anything by either of them, uh, it, it's well worth it. And for more modern developers or more modern businesses today, I think they'll, they'll get where the authors are coming from. But if you're working in traditional enterprise today, um, man, you're, you're in for a treat. You'll probably highlight just about every other paragraph as I did in, the, in my case reading that as well. Um, Paul, I know there were a couple other stories though uh, worth mentioning here. I don't know if you wanted to talk about any of them. Uh, Jira is an anti-pattern, which I thought was a, a pretty good call out, but also the need for sustainable free open source communities, um, which I also enjoyed reading that article. So we can talk about either as we wrap up. Yeah, I, I didn't read the Jira article. Um, what was the gist of that one? So basically, they're calling out Jira as not being a good thing for holding a, a map of where the, the product is actually trying to go. It's being mm-hmm. treated as basically a bunch of mini waterfalls inside of most development shops today, mm-hmm. which I thought was hilarious because they're pretty accurate uh, on the way that they were calling that out. So basically, they're saying don't let Jira become a map or a primary map in model for project completion because it, it actually doesn't uh, doesn't help because it's just mini waterfalls and as a series of developments toward a certain end goal. And most of the time, the people that are working on it don't know what the end goal is. So they make bad decisions in the development process that don't necessarily fit the end use case. I can see um, that because so I think Jira has been around uh, and was probably tuned for waterfall development and has had to make the changes to support DevOps and showing some of the so, some of its roots that is diff- are difficult to change. So. For sure, for sure. The other one that I thought was really great was actually Sustainable Free and Open Source Communities, or SFOSC.org. So this was a really great article by Adam Jacob uh, that recently uh, was released coinciding with a website that actually talks about um, the need for building good open source communities to uh, both 
build better software, but also for those companies that are thinking of building a business model around open sourcing their software, really taking a consideration for what that does to the, the way you build your community and what that means to the community you're trying to build. Um, I've read the ebook over the weekend on sfosc.org. Um, I've also actually committed a couple of uh, PRs for typo changes that I, I found in the process. Um, so true to open source, I went ahead and read it and then committed the changes. Um, yeah, and I think sustainable is important here, right? And it's one of the problems we talk about is, you know, how do you pass off your open source project now securely to someone you trust and how do you know who to trust and how do you make sure that what you're creating is sustainable and having a plan for moving into the future. I think that's one thing that could help the problem of all of the open source software vulnerabilities that we have. And even just functionality wise, you're relying on something that isn't being updated as often. How do you create a sustainable? I think a lot of people set out to do that from the beginning and then lose interest and move on. It's one of the beauties of open source. You can create all kinds of stuff, but now that we're more reliant upon it, I think as a, in technology in general, how does it become more sustainable? That's an interesting topic for me, for sure. Yeah, great website, great article. Um, I encourage everyone to go ahead and read that. That's going to be story number three under uh, the food, food for, for thought. thought. And then the last one, of course, is our commit strip. Uh, I actually went back to about a year ago to find this one. Um, it's the commit strip comic of the week, which is all about security versus business. And I thought our readers might enjoy that as well. So with that, thank you everyone for joining us this year for Application Security Weekly. We'll see you again in 2019. Happy holidays. Uh, happy New Year. And of course, in the meantime, remember to get commit and stay classy.